should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at commonwealthclub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. My name is Ladaris Cordell. It is my pleasure to introduce Michael Eric Dyson, author of The Black Presidency, Barack Obama and the Politics of Race in America. Michael Eric Dyson is a professor of sociology at Georgetown University and New York Times op-ed contributor. He also appears regularly as a political analyst on MSNBC and contributing editor for The New Republic. Known for providing some of the most significant commentary on race, politics, culture, and gender, Professor Dyson was named one of the 50 most inspiring African Americans in the United States by Essence Magazine and was one of Ebony Magazine's 100 most influential black Americans. He is a three-time NAACP Image Award winner and has won the American Book Award Prize for his book on Hurricane Katrina. Professor Dyson received his PhD in religion from Princeton University and has authored 18 books on a variety of subjects including hip-hop, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X. Please join me in welcoming Michael Eric Dyson. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And I'm just thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to you, to ask you a whole lot of questions. And I encourage the members of the audience, please, if you have questions, it's the wonderful person to ask them of. This man can talk. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Your Honor. All right, so should we just jump in, Professor? Yes, Your Honor. All right. Um, (laughs) In 2006, 
There was a book series where scholars and writers were invited to write about the seven deadly sins. And you were one of those invited writers. And your deadly sin was pride. Mm. All right? So it's this book right here. All right? Um, in that book, you wrote about the importance of books in your life when you were, and I quote you, an 18-year-old laid off from work, welfare-receiving teen father-to-be. Mm. And you wrote of how important public libraries were in your life when you were growing up. Mm -hmm. In Pride, you wrote, and I quote, but it was nonfiction writers that made me even hungrier to do what they did. And it is the example of nonfiction writers whose art and craft have inspired me in a sense of excellence that, although rarely attained in my work, fills me with pride when I hit the mark. So my first question to you is, with the book Black Presidency, your 18th book, have you hit the mark? <laughs> well, let me first of all say I'm incredibly honored to be here and uh, to have such a distinguished jurist and educator and uh, a remarkable force for good uh, to, to engage me in conversation. But since I knew I was coming before your bar, I did bring my personal lawyer, uh, Attorney Nadia Bishop. So uh, if there's anything I need to be defended on, she's here to help me out. Um, <clears throat> you know, no, I haven't. <laughs> um, I've, you know, attempted to, with each book, raise my game, so to speak. I've attempted to be as clear and as lucid and as eloquent as possible. Um, the writers who inspired me, James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, Albert Murray, Toni Morrison, um, within the canon of African-American literature, um, continue to inspire me and pull me forth. And I am uh, forever in search of uh, the better way to say it, to speak it, to talk it, and to write it. Um, I had the opportunity earlier today to uh, interview Kobe Bryant for 25 minutes because I'm writing a uh, cover story on him for Slam Magazine as he retires. And to, to talk to a figure who is as obsessed as Kobe Bryant is with excellence, with trying to be better each time out, uh, with five championship rings and not satisfied, still hungry. Um, it, it always reminds me of when I was at Princeton in graduate school and I saw Wynton Marsalis perform at the McCarter Theater there and he had just seen Mike Tyson demolish some unlucky soul. And he said, when I saw Tyson do what he did, it made me want to practice my horn more. <laughs> and so when I see other examples of excellence, it wants me to makes me want to practice my horn more, to find the rhythm, the the, uh, the ability to tell a story or to write a narrative uh, that is better than when I did it before. So no, I didn't uh, hit that mark, though I hope I came closer. And when you are surrounded um, with such powerful examples of the elegance, the eloquence, the, the incredible insight that you're striving for, uh, it continues to fuel and feed that hunger. I found the book to be fascinating, and there's just some fabulous 
language in that book. So uh, first question, black men got the vote in 1870 with the 15th Amendment before women of any color got the vote, and that was in 1920 with the 19th Amendment. So we have a black president. We've never had a woman of any color elected president. So does this mean that America, in America, sexism is far more pernicious than is racism? Hmm. I see why you are a famous judge. Um, you know, that's a tough question. I'm reminded of my very dear friend, the late, great Dr. Barbara Christian, uh, who was a professor at uh, Berkeley and one of the most renowned theorists that we've produced in African-American culture. And as a black woman, she said, we must reduce, we must resist the seduction of uh, oppression derbies. Mine's worse than yours. Mine has been more horrible. Because on the one hand, we could obviously argue if black men got the vote before white women, what position did it place those black men in in the broader culture and society, right? So that their legal standing, their political pedigree did not in any sense obviate or alleviate uh, both the political uh, suppression uh, that so many other African-American people endured, nor did it elevate their position permanently uh, beyond the precincts of prejudice and the vile bigotry that had prevailed in the culture. And white women who could not vote yet forged connections with white men who continued to rule and prevail in American society as partners with white men, forging, even from a subordinate position, an extraordinary influence over the broader culture, even as they were simultaneously forced into this uh, inferior position. So it's, it, in one sense, even though black men had more standing in public spaces, that testifies, yes, to the grand vision of patriarchy. But in patriarchy, the greatest threat to one male is another male, right? So in one sense, patriarchy's elevation of black men made them more obvious as victims and targets. Now, at the same time, black women of all creatures in the broader sense of the American society were more victimized than any. They were both black and female at a time when white women enjoyed elevated status. Now we know with the politics of respect that Jean-Jacques Rousseau talked about in the, or early on in Emile and other uh, uh, tracks where respect was used to keep women in their place. So we elevate you on a pedestal and should you fall off of that pedestal, we will retroactively and anachronistically slut shame you. All right, Kim Kardashian wasn't the first. So in that sense, um, black women were doubly demonized because black women didn't even have the elevated status on a pedestal of white womanhood, even though that subordinated them in the political economy of American society, and neither did they enjoy the patriarchal fruits that black men enjoyed, relatively speaking. So black women uh, were doubly indemnified, so to speak, and had the vicious double whammy of gender and race, and we can add other elements, class, region, and, and uh, you know, the poverty that black women and children are uh, so viciously subject to. So I think that sexism is, however, 
a very powerful force. And when you put it in the terms you have, when I look at uh, what has happened to President Barack Obama on his thin frame and his powerful shoulders rests the experimentation in a de democratic energy that has come to grips with the, the fatal relegation of blackness to the margins and now it has charged to the center. So the ways in which he has been uh, in, in so many ways attacked, assaulted, viciously um, undermined, a, a Congress that has obfuscated and obstructed and refused to acknowledge uh, his legitimacy so often as a political figure and even as the president, because presidents are substitute fathers, politicus paternus, if you will, uh, the fathers of the nation. Some are are cheating daddies like, you know, let's just say <laughs> cheating in the sense of refusing to give democracy its just due like a Richard Nixon or big Southern daddies like LBJ or loving paternal figures like FDR, you have nothing to fear but fear itself, or slick willy daddies like Bill Clinton. Um, Obama was denied the legitimacy of being the father of the nation because he can't even be seen as the son of this democratic experiment. But I must hasten to add, the way in which sexism has marked the body of Hillary is extraordinarily vicious and has been mostly unremarked on so that John Boehner can cry, the former um, political figure, speaker of uh, the House, um, and he is celebrated as an example of masculinity coming to grips with its vulnerable side. Hillary Clinton cries, there's no crying in, in baseball. What are you doing? She's demonized. And she is constantly subject to a double standard uh, that is utterly and depressingly um, evident to, to those of us who are sensitive to it. So for me, when I see Hillary Clinton, who, um, as we speak, uh, has won Mississippi uh, in a tight race with uh, Senator Sanders for, for Michigan as well, and having won so many other states. It's a remarkable testimony to her durability, to her invincibility, and to her determination to persist, even in the face of such obvious odds, uh, to claim her rightful place as, I think, the next president of the United States of America. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. 
After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. So let's talk about President Obama. In your book, Black Presidency, you write, Obama seems to feel he cannot hold white folks' feet to the fire even as he warms up to criticizing black folk explicitly. And you went on to call him reprimander in chief. So my question is, what is wrong with the occasional reprimand? And aren't his reprimands coming from a place of love and compassion? Hmm. <laughs> this is the danger with people who actually read your book. Yeah, it, um, <clears throat> you know, look, there's nothing wrong with the occasional reprimand. It's a tradition that is rife in African-American culture. Every figure, leader, worth his or her salt, has done so, chided black people into greater consciousness, uh, cajoled them, implored them to do better. But it was a both and, not an either or. They also chided white America. They also held white America to account. Many of the things that Barack Obama said are tired, old rehashes of what Jesse Jackson said 40 and 50 years ago. Jesse Jackson was caught on um, <clears throat> 60 Minutes saying to black people, don't reel all the guilties out here. You know, it takes more uh, than a human being. If you want to be a man, you've got to not just have a baby, you've got to rear that baby. So. Obama ain't saying nothing new. The fact that it sounds new, the fact that he would represent it as new, the fact that he would take advantage of and exploit the ignorance of many white Americans to a vibrant tradition of relatively speaking morally conservative discourse and rhetoric tethered to what has been called by Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, the politics of respectability, that's part and parcel, woof and warp of the very both fabric and structure of African-American culture. Booker T. Washington, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote an advice column in Ebony Magazine, for God's sake. So he was telling folk what they should be doing and not be doing and do this and do that, both the existential and the intimate aspects of blackness and the decorum that people should have, as well as fighting the broader forces of white supremacy. The president has been great on the reprimand and short-sighted and light on the equal demand of the broader society, especially white America, to treat black people with respect. So when you do the one without the other, it looks as if you're saying only black people 
are deserving of a reprimand. Only black people have certain pathologies that must be uprooted, and only black people must be held to account in public. So the problem with him reprimanding black people is that white folk go, well, I felt guilty about saying these things, but if the president is saying them, then they must be true. Even white liberal folk say, you know, I thought it was some of the structural stuff, but he doesn't talk too much about that. He talks about getting yourself together and doing your own personal thing and not making excuses and not getting anything you don't deserve. So, hey, maybe I should not do the structural stuff and instead focus on the personal stuff and, hey, it's up to black people themselves. That's dangerous. It is not only mendacious, it is not only wrong, it is dangerous because it misrepresents the truth, the truth that he knows too well all too well because of the exceeding eloquence of his own memoir, one of the greatest written in the history of black letters, Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington, uh, Man Child in the Promised Land by Claude Brown, uh, Makes Me Wanna Holler by Nathan McCall, the, the autobiography of Malcolm X, and now uh, Dreams for My Father, black men grappling with the existential anxieties and miseries and the nervous tics that are the peculiar manifestation of black struggle in public and in private with what it means to be a human being. So with all that rich heritage, why reduce the complexity of that quest for a moral narrative of both self-respect and self-criticism to the fact that, aha, you're messing up and therefore I have to tell you what you're doing before white Americans. And, and let me end by saying this, and when you do that and don't hold white folk accountable, now we know we can't hold white folk accountable. That's the nature of the deal, right? Because he tried out here in San Francisco at a Tony fundraiser when he was running the first time. And he said, when he thought it was off the record, <laughs> you know, that white folk uh, in the certain Midwest parts, they be getting bitter, cling to their guns and their religion. Oh, white folk wasn't taking that at all. That went over like a brick cloud. So white america now i know i'm speaking in general terms how ridiculous how how ludicrous as mike tyson might say that i would characterize white america as white america but welcome to the world this is what happens to black people and women and other minorities all the time so i know white america is much more heterogeneous and compl complicated but white america said no you can't do that and obama has never since stepped to that podium and said what he knows to be true. White America is equally involved in a project of struggling with their own definitions of identity and what it means to be American when he saw the Confederate flag, when he knows that there are pockets of white people who are bigoted beyond belief because they expressed their spleen and venom toward him, but he will never say that because he doesn't have the opportunity. My only plea is then, if you know you can't say it to white folk, don't say it to black folk. Because when you say it to black folk and not white folk, you make it look like only the black folk are deserving of it. So you talk about Kanye, but you ain't got nothing to say about Miley Cyrus. And for those who know Miley Cyrus, that is, you know. So you jump on one side, but not the other. And yes, I think uh, that's problematic. Not the impulse to reprimand, not the impulse to hold accountable, not the impulse to chat. I'm an ordained Baptist minister, been one for 35 years. I preach on most Sundays. You go to any black church, you hear what Obama said plentifully. And he knows that. And he knows black folk wouldn't argue with him against that. But the last famous figure to make Obama's line of argument before him was a, was a, a man by the name of Dr. William Cosby. We saw how that ended.
in uh, such a fantastic and fantastically fatal fashion. So I would just argue against that and argue for a bit more calm and balance and passionate devotion to the truth in its complicated expression. So more from your book. In Black Presidency, you describe the anger of the Tea Party folks and their ilk who see in our president, and I quote you, his utter otherness, his fatal foreignness, and his essential and fundamental un-Americanness. You also wrote, Obama would never get to the White House except as a visitor if he came off as too angry, or for that matter, if he appeared angry at all. And then you wrote, it is okay to be white and angry. It is not okay to be black and angry. So talk to us about the difference between black and white anger, and are you angry? <laughs> I ain't mad at you. Um, <laughs> Donald Trump, Barack Obama. What, what, what? I mean, that's what I got. I could go into the middle of the street and say I'm gonna shoot somebody and I could still get votes. Dude, if Obama dreamed he could say that, he better wake up and apologize, right? And he's the president and Donald Trump is running to become the nominee of his party. Um, white anger is real. White brothers and sisters here know that. People who have been victims of white anger know that. White anger takes multiple forms. And we see, you know, among all of these exit polls in some of these primaries where white Americans are extremely angry in certain regions, but not just there in the South, across America. Some of it is legitimate disquiet and discomfort, discomfort with uh, what many people perceive to be an economy that didn't work for them. Although I must say, I would argue that in general, as a middle-class white American, middle-class white Americans ought to thank Obama more than anybody else, because they done got the hookup big, right? I mean, the, the unemployment rate is 4.9%? Jiminy Cricket. Black people continue, black people's unemployment rate continues to be eight, nine percent, somewhere around eight percent. At its height, 14.3 percent. Latino uh, unemployment hovered around eight, nine, 10, 11 sometimes at this height, uh, 11 and a half, 12 percent. So it, it's certainly down now. But, um, you, you know, for, for the majority of Americans who have benefited from the extraordinary job creation of the Obama administration, uh, it, 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 it does make one wonder why there would be such vast reaches of anger among the white voterate, more broadly construed, certain segments of it when you disaggregate the data. So that white anger is real, and sometimes it's the unconscious bias and resentment of a black man being in charge. We don't want to say it that way, but for real? I mean, you know, well, aren't there multi-evidential factors that must be taken into account? Why do you reductionistically assert that it's just because he's black? Well, <laughs> he's the only president in the history of this nation not to have the debt ceiling automatically raised. 
Democrat or Republican, right? Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, George Bush, all of them without question, because the debt ceiling is about the bill you already got. That's your American Express come and do. You don't already put the stuff on the card. Now you're going like, I refuse to pay it. Uh, bruh, you've already charged that in the money. All right. You got a subscription to X, Y, and Z. So Obama has been treated in a way many presidents have been hated, have been treated with extraordinary disrespect. But there's an overlay even with Obama that is a racially tinged one. You know, here you are in a joint meeting of Congress and a congressman from South Carolina calls you a liar in public. Here you are on the White House lawn trying to build up your statement to give a press conference and you are interrupted by a conservative white journalist. Here you are on the tarmac in Arizona and a white female governor, white female governor, white female governor, because there are many more female senators and governors than there are black ones. So if women started from behind, they done caught up and surpassed, collectively speaking, um, uh, African-American constituencies. So this white female governor puts her finger in Obama's face, treating him as if he were her little boy. Um, and the, all the nastiness and the vitriol, the death threats that are unimaginable, much more than any other president has endured. So when you put all that stuff together and calling him a cipher and a simian and comparing him to anything but a human being and the birther element that denied his legitimacy either as a citizen and in some cases for some people as a human being. Uh, conservative brothers and sisters say they stand against abortion, but they wanted to retroactively abort Obama. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Hi, my name is Courtney Ziegler, and I'm the founder of TransHack, which is an organization focused on creating technology for the trans community and visibility for trans technologists and entrepreneurs. Tech is like the new industrial revolution. There's so many opportunities for wealth building and wealth creation. It's perfect for the trans community, which experiences strong amounts of unemployment um, and low wages. TransHack um, provides an opportunity for trans individuals to take advantage of the wealth creation that the tech industry provides. Um, it's a space in which people who are in charge of innovation and development, all these awesome things that we are able to use through technology, are paid really well for that. And so I think that trans people should definitely have their hand in, in that space and creating that. And so TransHack provides that opportunity. I got my first computer when I was 15 years old in the 90s, and it changed my world ever since then. And I went on to become an independent filmmaker who had to uh, not only write direct my own films, but also was kind of doing the technical stuff behind it, which is the editing and the capturing, all those things. I've always had this kind of tech-based background. I'm just very curious about a lot of things and just very fascinated about things that I don't know um, and things that can make me a better person. All of that motivates me. I'm just like, what else can I know? What else can I do? What else can I learn? 
Success to me means a number of things. I think right now in my life personally, it means waking up every day and feeling proud of the work that I'm doing and proud of myself. Just know what you want to get out of any particular industry. Um, it's not an industry that's 100% inclusive in the ways that it should be, in the ways that it's progressing towards, of all types of people in terms of creating the tech and the industry itself, building its infrastructure. Um, but that's also exciting in the fact that like um, people like me have a lot of room to change a lot of things and a lot of precedent to set. So, um, and that is the, the epitome of success. Spotlight on success and achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Conservative brothers and sisters say they stand against abortion, but they wanted to retroactively abort Obama and uncreate him, unmake him, unbirth him. And the leading figure of the birther movement is now the leading figure for the Republican nomination to be president. If that don't tell you everything you need to know, you don't really want to know. So I think that there are some deep and profound gashes in the body politic that have been delivered as a result of the ruinous reach of race. And um, I think we have to be open and honest about that. And so Obama can't be. Of course he can't be. You know, many of my white brothers and sisters on the left, fellow leftists go, well, why can't he just get mad? You can't even deal with Cam Newton. How you gonna deal with a president this mad? Imagine Obama, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. said that he could not often listen to Malcolm X. He said if he listened to Malcolm X, his speeches might sound differently. So can you imagine King giving I have a dream speech after listening to Malcolm? I had a dream, but I'm mad as hell right now. I think we ought to go out here and whip some head up in here today. <laughs> so, can, can, so, so Obama, can't get mad, he can't be angry, he can't express, but, but, but some of us would love to translate the anger for Obama. For instance, two State of the Unions ago, when the president said, I have no more races to run, and the Republicans thought they would get ch chippy, chirpy, and a bit churlish, and say ha ha ha, and clap, he said, look, that's because I beat you twice already. <laughs> I'll say that in scare quotes so the lovely audience at home can't hear what I'm saying. What you think? That's what I do. Um, so Obama has to channel it and be very cautious and careful. That's why his hair is grayer, although all those presidents get gray hair. His is, uh, is getting gray. Uh, he has to suppress what he might feel. Eric Holder. Uh, the former attorney general told me in my book, and he says uh, very poignantly that he compares uh, Obama to Jackie Robinson, and he said the reason Jackie Robinson died early, he thinks, is because he just took it. And if you go see the movie Race with Jesse Owens about him, you'll see what happens when those pioneers just had to take it. The viciousness, the vitriol, the hatred, the renunciation of our compact is as fellow citizens, even when he's beating Hitler at his own game to prove that the Aryan mythology will go the way of all flesh, he is resented by the very white people whom he represents and whom he defends 
with his extraordinary artistry on that uh, track and field. That's the price Obama has paid, and the inability to be angry is certainly one of the prices he has had to uh, pay. So let, let's change up the pace a little bit. Um, Warren Beatty starred in the movie Bullworth, and you wrote about that movie in Black Presidency. So what does a 1998 comedy about a white guy who runs for re-election as a California state senator got to do with the Obama presidency? Mm -hmm. Man, that's the serious reading. Um, well, you know, a news report came out in the New York Times uh, that said, according to some of Obama's most cherished and trusted advisors, sometimes he chafed at the limits imposed upon any president living in that fishbowl, but especially him as a black president. Uh, and so he dreamed of going Bullworth, by which he meant, you know, Warren Beatty was just, Warren Beatty starred as Jay Billington Bullworth, um, a, a senator, a United States senator, who hired somebody to kill him in a fit of depression, and he wanted to be killed so his family could collect his life insurance. And in the interim, when he hired the person to kill him, and then the few days he had left, he met Halle Berry, that can revive any man's desire to live. Um, and um, he began to speak freely. And gangster rap was his lingua franca, right? He, he, he started cussing like gangster rappers do, using obscene terms and rhyming and couplets. And he found his niche and his metier, his milieu. He began to express himself with power. And people were like, what the hell? He was offending Jews and blacks and anybody he could um, because he was being politically incorrect and telling as much of the truth as he desired to do so. Um, so Obama, using uh, Bullworth as a metaphor, secretly desired, can't you imagine, that he just wants to come out the White House sometimes in a skull cap? <laughs> now this is not his fantasy, this is mine, so <laughs> let me be clear. Obama is much more refined than am I. So I, Obama could fantasize coming out the White House in a skull cap with a gold grill, with some diamonds in it, with a terry cloth robe on, with those Magic Johnson long socks, and saying, what? This is my house, I'm living in public housing. Me and my people up in here. Uh, <laughs> and one can imagine that uh, <clears throat> Obama, instead of turning the White House the colors of the rainbow, after the Supreme Court supported and affirmed and, 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 and undergirded in a very powerful and positive fashion gay marriage. That, um, and in doing that by turning that, that White House the rainbow colors, maybe, we don't expect Obama to come out speaking Swahili, Rafiki Wakuumba, Basele Bonge Ete Langwene. Okay, that's a mixture. But, but what's interesting is that we don't expect him to do that or turn the White House red, black, and green. But what's interesting about, about going Bullworth is that black figures of an elite status often have to walk a very tight line. And the tightrope is tight. Even a figure like Beyonce, you know, when she comes out in the halftime of the Super Bowl show and steals it from Brother Chris, sorry Coldplay, and 
then the police unions of America are upset with her. And Rudy Giuliani says that she hates the police. Why? Because she said, stop shooting us. Stop killing us. If the demand for the police and others not to kill black people is an offense to the police, then let them be offended. But, but Saturday Night Live nailed it when white America just discovered that Beyonce was black. The day Beyonce became black. And then at the end, I love it, they say, Kerry Washington may be black too. Oh my God. Because excellence in the white mindset signifies transcendence, no longer black. And it's interesting, black excellence is seen as an exception to the race, whereas black pathology is seen as representative of the race, right? So as a result of that, Barack Obama is walking an extraordinarily difficult tightrope across eggshells over a ravine that has a deep chasm and abyss. And uh, the fact that he is still there uh, with dignity, with eloquence, with a sense of humor, a kind of self-deprecating and biting humor at times, uh, is a mark of his profound humanity and the most powerful antithesis to all of the naysaying that has gone on. So he's had to channel that anger in very productive and edifying fashion. Plus, he's from Hawaii. He ain't that mad. <clears throat> so in your book, you write about another president. And you say this about Bill Clinton, quote, if throwing friends under the bus were an Olympic sport, Clinton might win the gold medal for a triathlon of black dissing that also included Jesse Jackson, Joycelyn Elders, and Lonnie Guineer. Has President Obama thrown any black folks under the bus? And I'm thinking of Van Jones, Shirley Sherrod. She said it. <laughs> That's a brilliant, brilliant question, really. I've never been asked that question. You know, <clears throat> that's a powerful analysis. And yes, he has. Of course he has. All presidents do. Toni Morrison said that America, in part, is built on the backs of blacks. And even recently arriving immigrants know that if they diss the lowest rung on the totem pole, if they diss blackness more broadly, that's a way of forging connection with other Americans to become more American, right? Even as immigrants themselves, especially from Central and South America, are being dissed and profoundly uh, mistreated with various forms of social injustice and political uh, marginalization. Um, so yeah, you've named uh, two of them. I mean, Shirley Sherrod didn't even get a chance. She just got straight up dissed. Uh, Van Jones with, you know, the green jobs and the like, uh, not much of a chance. Jeremiah Wright, not much of a chance. And maybe Bill Clinton and Barack Obama share Jesse Jackson in common. Now, it is true that Jesse Jackson wanted to offer the president a severed package. If y'all know what I'm saying for this PG audience. He wanted to solve the testicular fortitude of the Obama administration 
precariously and precipitously. I'm trying to euphemistically tell you what he wanted to do. So, uh, of course, you're going to be mad at somebody trying to, to attack your manhood in that fashion. But Joe Lieberman did worse than that. He joined the other side and then ran against the president, that is, by standing with his very dear friend, John McCain. And what is the first thing Obama said when he was elected? And Joe Lieberman was going back to the Senate. Do not punish him because Obama is gracious and grand, and he wanted to be postpartisan, but he had no such words to say, let me bring Jesse Jackson in from the coal. After all, we've, we've collectively got on the coattails of this man for nearly 40 years, from King's assassination darn near to Obama's inauguration, 40 years in the wilderness. After Moses, King goes down. Joshua, and even though Obama says he's part of the Joshua generation. That's a little bit of misled biblical interpretation because Joshua is the one who said, go back to the river of Jordan where you just crossed over and get 12 stones as a memorial to remind us how we got over. So Obama ain't too much into the get the stones and remind us where we've been. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipper of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Um, So I saw that to say, yeah, Jeremiah Wright, Jesse Jackson, um, Shirley Sherrod, Van Jones, there are a number of casualties. It doesn't mean that Obama necessarily in the same way as Clinton dissed them, but it is to argue that he did diss them in the same way that Bill Clinton did. And the consequence, (laughs) try that out for a twister, Um, and the consequences have been even more devastating because as an African-American president, to be dissed by your own is especially hurtful, is especially painful. And so, yes, I think that Obama has thrown black people collectively under the bus. When he went to Morehouse College 
And he said to those young black men, now stop making excuses, sir. They have not made excuses. They are graduating. And he said, nobody is going to give you anything you haven't earned. Again, sir, the only person who didn't earn a degree that day was you. You got an honorary degree. And as the recipient of several of them, I can tell you, I did nothing but show up and leverage whatever teaspoon of fame and celebrity I have as the basis of being awarded an honorary degree. When he went to Barnard, did he tell those young white women or women in general, but white women in particular? Now, nobody wants to hear about your sexism and you have to get what you earn. Why? Because they're making 70 cents on a dollar as a man. And he would have been booed, roundly booed, and rightfully so. Black people wouldn't do it. Why? Because he's the first one. White people are bored. They got 43 presidents. Andrew Jackson, FDR, Richard Nixon, LBJ, Lincoln, OE, whatever. Right? Black people got one. And then white brothers and sisters remind me that he's half white. They say he's half us. So we got half a brother (laughs) in the White House. So black folk are defensive and protective, understandably so. So we overlook the evident abuse because to acknowledge that abuse is too painful for us to engage. Barbara Streisand said it best, what's too painful to remember, we simply choose to forget. So like the rest of America, as Gore Vidal said, we live in the United States of amnesia as well, except in our case, we're living in Aframnesia a kind of black forgetfulness that is the ticket to our survival, the suppression of vicious memories in a neo-Freudian sense that permits us to hold on to our dignity and to also assert the beauty of this man. He is a beautiful, wonderful, amazing man, but he's a flawed man, and it's hard for us to maintain both of those. As I've said before, I think Barack Obama is the Shaquille O'Neal of presidents. Right. Shaquille O'Neal won four rings, an amazing man, an amazingly gifted athlete, one of the most dominant athletes of all time. But he was a poor free throw shooter. So when you tell the story of of, of O'Neal, you can't pretend he shot free throws well. He was a great figure. He was. He was a great basketball player. He was. And he shot free throws well. He didn't. Obama's a great president. He was. He is. He will go down as one of the greatest ever. He will. But he, but he also did great things about race and didn't throw black people on the bus. That's not true, right? So, and, and at the end of the game, the hack of Shaq came in. The vulnerability of Shaq was used against the team. And the vulnerability of race is used against the team of black people. When he went to the Congressional Black Caucus, I was sitting there that night. I heard it with my own ears. Obama says, because he was mad, that black politicians would dare have the unabashed temerity to hold him accountable, even gently, said to them, stop complaining. Did he say that to Latinos? Of course he wouldn't. Did he say it to Jews, Poles, Italians, Lithuanians? No. Did he say this to environmentalists? Did he say it to LBGTQ? No, but he would say it to black folk. He said, stop complaining. He said, take off your bedroom slippers and put on your house, take off your bedroom slippers and put on your marching boots. To people who, when he was a knee-high to a tadpole, were, was having their skulls cracked. John Lewis and John Conyers on the front line and Maxine Waters, a long runner, long-distance runner. So Charles Rangel, I was there. They were stunned and insulted. So yes, he has thrown black people under the bus, and he has done so 
for the purposes, A, because he honestly believed those kinds of conservative things, B, because it played well in the white population that was skeptical about him that might be won over, and C, it was the replay of a struggle he's often had in his own mind and heart and soul and body and in his, in his community, and now uh, against the backdrop of American political history and destiny, an argument about the right way to figure ourselves through the morass of black suffering and the structural impediments that prevent black flourishing, as well as the need to hold black people accountable and responsible. All that stuff was going on, but there's no question that he did his fair share of dissing as well. We have many questions from the audience, but before we go there, let's just do a quick lightning round. So what I'm gonna do is I want you to imagine that each of the following black Americans has just become president of the United States. Mm -hmm. and I want you to give each a grade, A to F, for each for how effective you believe each would be. Mm. All right? First up, Ben Carson. F minus. All right. All right. And you, you're welcome to add one, a quick comment, because we're going to just go through them, and then we'll go to questions. Genius as a surgeon, not so much as a politician, known for separating twins. Separate yourself from that craziness that you believe politically. All right, next up. All right, Al Sharpton. Um, a B plus. Yes, and I'll tell you why. Put a silhouette of Al Sharpton against George Washington. They're the same dude. Al Sharpton is a, okay, A minus for Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton is a throwback, right, to an earlier era. Al Sharpton gets an A minus in my book, and if I keep talking, he might get an A. He gets an A minus because like Emerson, he's a self-rebegetting character. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and in the heteropatriarchal norms by which we judge certain varieties of black leadership, Martin Luther King Jr. died, Jesse Jackson emerged. Jesse did not die. So in order for Al Sharpton to emerge, he had to kill himself. He cut himself in half. He lost. He's not half the man he was before, but he's better than he's ever been. He's more open. He's more powerful, and he gives a, an incredible insight into American democracy. Here's one that is, that is beautiful. He said, I was looking at, at Ray Charles singing one, and he's singing America the Beautiful. And it occurred to me, he's singing about something he ain't never seen because it was an act of faith. That is the faith that has animated us best as Americans. That's a beautiful Ray Charles democracy that we need to embrace. All right. Uh, Michelle Obama. Mm. I think I'd have to give her an A. All right. Uh, the former Secret Service serviceman wrote a book and in that book, he said they loved Michelle Obama for two reasons. First, because she was nice and loving to them. She touched them. She hugged them. B, one, two, because she also chided Obama. Hey, stop wasting these men's time. You're often making them late. They got schedules, too. They loved her for that. They didn't like her because she dogged the Republicans. My girl. And in the front seat, the white Secret Serviceman heard her in the back of the presidential limo say to Obama every now and again, take the black people's side. 
That's a woman, ah, ah. That's a woman who understands. The fact that she had to tell him is remarkable. The fact that she told him is edifying. So I think that she has grown to such a degree that people love her and would respect her and that her policies would probably be equally as appropriate as her husband's in the long run to people who don't love truth. But for those who embrace it and who understand the beauty of democracy, I think that she would do an extraordinary job. And she is just a, not only a phenomenal woman, uh, but a woman who is dipped deep into the waters of her community while embracing the broader mainstream. Last one, last one. Uh, and this is someone who said he, he wants to run for president, Kanye West. Wow. Now, some would say just to have Kim Kardashian as the first lady <laughs> would be rather stunning. Uh, let me tell you what. I have been a longtime supporter of and fan of Kanye West. Let me tell you why. Even when it was unpopular, especially when it was unpopular. Because when he stood the first time, and I was there actually, I was in the building in New York when he went up on stage a little drunk and took the microphone from Taylor Swift, and I love Taylor Swift, 15 years old, prodigy as a songwriter. Not necessarily as a performer, she's a great performer, but she is not as great as a performer as she is as a songwriter. So when the award that night, the Moon Man to be given from MTV was for performance, we knew that Beyonce won. Stop, don't even act like it's a competition. Right? Even the Pope was down with that song. If you really want me to be pontiff, put a ring on me. So, uh-oh, <clears throat> uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. That was the jam, right? Every, roaches and rats were singing that song. It was amazing. <laughs> so everybody know, but Kanye West was Oscar so white in Precy. He was basically saying that black people often, people of color often don't get what they deserve. And he was tired of seeing people, I bet little Richard was at home going, hey, where were you when I needed you? <laughs> Give me my grandma, woo, shut up. I bet, you, I, bet you, I bet you Chuck Berry was at home when they gave my award to Pat Boone. I bet you Little Richard said when they gave my award to Elvis. You know, so, so I loved him. But now he's such a genius still, but I think he's off the tracks a little bit there. As a president, I'm not sure he would do better than a C at this point. Still better than Ted Cruz <laughs> and still better than Marco Rubio. We're going to take now questions from the audience. I've got many, many, so we can see how fast we can get through these. Right. Some people have said that Bernie Sanders insulted African Americans in the most recent debate when he talked about the ghetto in explaining the experience of African Americans. Do you think this was an insulting comment? I got to tell you, and you've already heard me say I'm for Hillary, so I, I ain't no secret. I disagree with that. I do. I understand what the man was saying. There's a lot of folk in the ghetto, <laughs> number one. Now, of course, we can't reduce the complexity and beauty of black identity to the ghetto. And it's not that people who are upper middle class and middle class don't deserve to be represented, represented in the government, but they will do better than those who are not. Those people in Flint are struggling working class people who may live in a ghetto, not of their choosing, who may be marginalized because of steering, and real estate practices, I did not find it offensive. I didn't find his intent offensive. I know people said, look, I could point to a lot more stuff that I think Bernie Sanders is racially insensitive about and had to be pushed on. Look, he's a 74-year-old white man. What are you, come on, be real. The dude is doing pretty good for that. A 70-year-old white woman, they're, 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 trying to, they're trying to play catch up, 
right? But the reality is, is that I did not find that offensive to the degree that many other people did. Maybe I'm not as well informed. Maybe I don't understand the complicated nuances of it, but I did not, I heard it lie. I was sitting there. I did not take offense in the way uh, many other people did. I get the point that black people are bigger than the ghetto and we got to get out of the ghetto of being seen as the ghetto. I get that point. I get the point of relegating us. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week.